Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Already today, you have followed or declined to follow or not not understood how to follow rules, a whole bunch of rules, right? From the time you got up to the time you started listening to the show, there were rules and some of them were right in front of your face. Some of them were a little bit murkier. Maybe if you drove somewhere today, what is, what is the speed limit really? Is it the thing that it says on the sign or is it how fast everybody else is going? We're gonna explore all of that. The complexity of rules, the necessity of rules, thick rules which require, or at least can absorb a lot of interpretation, and thin rules where if you break them, they break you. Uh, and everything in between. This is turning out to be, at least in terms of preparation, a really fun show to do. I hope you enjoy it as much as I expect to. But there's no rule that says you have to have to enjoy it. Although maybe there ought to be a rule that says you have to enjoy this show. So today's show is about rules, and it's one of those things that when you start thinking about it, you can't stop thinking about it, and you see it everywhere, and you realize it is everywhere all the time. It's really funny, too, because I had a, a, my weekly newsletter went out, and it was a essay or meditation on questions of leaving. You know, there's this whole idea of the Irish goodbye where you just leave a party without saying goodbye. Uh, <laughs> and and all kinds of different permutations of that. And, and then people and people wrote to me, because I also described that I have sort of in-law status with a large Irish family that doesn't do the Irish goodbye. They, in fact, it takes them 30 or 45 minutes to leave a family gathering. From the time somebody says, well, this has been a lovely evening, to the time that the tires are actually gripping the road, can be 45 minutes. And so I heard from other people in similar situations, including my friend Chris Knopf, who, who is also married into such a family. And he said, I recently made a rule that um, you can't introduce a new topic during this process. Because he's kind of dealing with the same window to 30, 45 minutes of leaving. But you can't bring up something new that hasn't been discussed already in the evening uh, as you're, what, during this time when you're you know, putatively leaving. And I wrote back and I said, well, I don't think I have the kind of standing in that family to make a rule and impose it. And he said, well, neither do I, but I got some other people together, maybe some of the other guys who kind of married in. Uh, and so they're supporting me on this. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, this is straight out of the pages uh, of the book of our first and very main guest here today, uh, Lorraine Daston, uh, author of Rules, A Short History of What We Live By, and Director Emerita of the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, and regular visiting professor in the Committee on Social Thought uh, at the University of Chicago. So first of all, welcome to our show. 
Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, and just even reading uh, the short version of your bio, I'm thinking uh, um, somebody who's lived any substantial portion of their life in Germany might conceivably start getting interested in rules the way you might get interested in fountains if you lived in Florence. This is so true. I think the idea from for the book first came when I was visiting a beach in northern Germany, which had neatly mapped out various parts of the beach for people wearing bathing suits, people not wearing bathing suits, for dogs, for people wanting to play volleyball, and on and on. Each of these parts of the beach numbered and labeled. Um, and I thought to myself, first, it's a wonder that somebody took the trouble to do this. And it's a second wonder that people obey these rules. Right. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the dogs, too, because I was thinking today that, you know, we have leash laws all over where I live. But there's a place that I go with my dog sometimes that is a wildlife area where dogs are specifically allowed to roam off leash. And it has something to do with the fact that they lease the land out on weekends for field trials of like hunting dogs and stuff like that. Uh, And so the dogs have to be off leash to do those things. And then at least anecdotally. So that means that they can't have that rule any of the other times. But what's interesting about it is if you have 30 or 40 dogs in this kind of wild area all running around together, I mean, in a kind of Rousseau-like way, people just start making rules, right? Like, that's okay, that's not okay, no humping, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> suddenly there are rules because you can't, you can't function with chaotic dogs and, and no rules. Maybe you could sort of speak to Is there just sort of a natural thing where we are going to make rules? Well, first of all, I'd be interested whether the dogs make rules, but well, I'm um, sure they do. The, I'm sure they do. They don't share them with us, though. Back to the humans. I think there is something intrinsic to our species and perhaps to other species about um, coordinating collective action by rules. And I think when you think about it for a moment, it's impossible to imagine a culture that does not have rules. In fact, one could even argue that the definition of a culture is a set of explicitly or implicitly agreed upon rules. And I think that's part and parcel of being a social animal insofar as human beings are dependent on living together. um, They have devised ways of coordinating their behavior, avoiding conflicts, and genuinely, generally lubricating the wheels of social interaction. Right. And if you look at sort of the history of, you know, what has survived of written traditions in early civilizations, you've got the Code of Hammurabi, you've got the Old Testament, which is, you know, books like Deuteronomy are just basically long lists of rules about what to do if a gecko falls into a well or something like that. There's there's this sense that from, almost from the time we started being able to write things down. One of the first things we needed to write down were what the rules were. I think it's very interesting that the rules get written down, especially thinking about the Hebrew Bible, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, in part because most of those rules, one would think, would be self-evident in most communities, as opposed to the ones in Deuteronomy, which are um, so specialized and sometimes so opaque, at least to modern understandings, that much anthropological and I'm sure also exegetical ink has been spilled on them. But I assume that the reason for writing them down was that something that most of the community had taken to be self-evident, 
I'll just say, um, that shall honor their fa- your father and mother had somehow been violated. So there was felt to be a need to literally set this in stone. Right. And, but it's also interesting that as we're talking about those things, we kind of quickly get into the area, the distinction you make between thin rules and thick rules. All right. So a thin rule, like, you know, the Ten Commandments are kind of thick rules. I don't think God is really interested in discussing with you, you know, whether you do these <laughs> things or not. You know, he, he wouldn't have sent Moses down with those tablets uh, if he wasn't pretty sure that that's the way he wanted things. You know, but a lot of these other rules, and if you think even about sort of Talmudic interpretation, you know, there's an old joke, uh, get uh, two rabbis together, you get three opinions. You know, there's this, there is this long history of interpreting rules. Uh, and and that's those are thick rules, right? The thick rules are the ones that need weighing and consideration. I'm not so sure that God knew exactly what he wanted. <laughs> um, after all, there's the case of the binding of Isaac. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The Ten Commandments um, say unequivocally um, that murder is wrong, certainly the murder of a member of your family, your child, and yet he commands um, Abraham to take his son Isaac, whom he loves well, um, to be sacrificed as a proof of Abraham's faith in God. And it's exactly when that apparently very thin and imperative exhortation becomes thick that it begins to spawn all manner of interpretations to to this day. Um, In general, the thick rules are rules that encounter much variability in their environment. They're, They're rules which assume explicitly or implicitly that there are going to be recalcitrant particulars that are not going to fit neatly into the generality which the rule specifies, and that you're going to have to use your discretion, your judgment, your past experience in order to tweak the rule, stretch the rule, bend the rule, sometimes even break the rule, in order to achieve the rule's purpose. So if you have an environment that throws up lots of surprises, that's when rules start to thicken. Um, If you have an environment which is stable, predictable, low variability, then you can at least sustain the illusion that your rules are thin. Right. So, yeah. And I think also not only is the unpredictable environment important, but I think also, well, I mean, one of the things that I think a lot about in this context uh, is our criminal organizations, the underworld, the mafia, whatever you want, whatever you want to call this, because they have either implicitly or explicitly decided not to follow the laws uh, of, of their nation. Uh, and in, But instead, because of that, they have to make up their own rules. They, uh, they have to have rules about what happens if somebody does something. Else. What if you hit somebody who you're not supposed to? Well, actually, I'll give you an example. Uh, this is from the movie The Departed, a uh, 2006 uh, film. Uh, you're going to hear Mr. French, who's the enforcer of the Irish mob in Boston, talking to a character played by Leo DiCaprio, uh, who has just hit somebody. He's taken a glass in an in a, in a underworld bar and smashed it into the head. Uh, of somebody else. So this actually, we're going to do A1 first, Kat, despite despite what I said. A1. Do you know me? No. No. Well, I'm the guy that tells you there are guys you can hit and there's guys you can't. Now, that's not quite a guy you can't hit, but it's almost a guy you can't hit. So I'm going to make a rolling on this right now. You don't hit him. You understand? 
So Lorraine, <laughs> there's a lot there, that tiny little space, right? Yeah. Uh, there are guys you can hit, guys you can't hit. That's not quite a guy you can't hit, but I'm going to make a ruling that you can't hit him. That That's a very thick rule there that's kind of being interpreted on the spot. Yes, and by a figure of authority, yeah. evidently. Um, yes, and I, I think it's a really good example of what we were talking about a moment ago, which is there is no group of human beings so unruly, so lawless, that they do not have rules of that kind to regulate their interactions about the guys you can hit, the guys you can't hit, and especially that gray area, guys you can almost hit. Right. And so the other thing that you, another one of the men, this book is fascinating. And really, once you get into it, you just can't stop thinking about all these things. But one of the other things you talk about um, are rules that are established by models and modeling. Uh, in other words, we watch what other people are doing, right? The, and we, we, we understand the rules from that. Uh, so I'm going to play another clip now. <laughs> this is from the movie Starman, in which Jeff Bridges uh, is a he plays a space alien who kind of in, reconstructs the body of a, a dead man and, and inhabits that. He's trying to function in this society uh, alongside Karen Allen, whose dead husband's body he's essentially borrowed. So here they are driving down the road. This is a two cat. You said you watched me. You said you knew the rules. I do know the rules. Oh well, for your information, pal, that was a yellow light back there. I watched you very carefully. Red light stop, green light go, yellow light go very fast. So Lorraine, uh, <laughs> he watched very carefully, and that appeared to be what the rule was, right? I know that you you talk about, you know, I mean, speed limits are kind of the same way. The sign might say 55, but if everybody around you is going 70, what's the speed limit? Exactly. And, and especially, not only what is the actual speed limit as opposed to the posted speed limit, but how far can you edge above it without getting a traffic ticket? <laughs> um, those are all that you can think about the rule as being a straight line, the straight and narrow, but on either side, there's a kind of fuzzy zone in which people are constantly not only interpreting the rule for themselves, but eyeing the person to the left of them, eyeing to the person to the right of them, and calibrating with each other as to just how close to get to the straight and narrow, just how broad the latitude is for interpretation. So one of the really fascinating parts of your book uh, has to do with the Enlightenment. Now, we think of the Enlightenment as a time when Rousseau, Locke, Grotius, um, you know, they're all kind of trying to figure out sort of how, how we have a society where there are rules that either reflect natural laws or human consensus or opportunities for humans to thrive. But while they're thinking about that, in, in the, back in the real world, uh, people are, are thinking, if we could just make enough rules uh, for everything, we'll have a functioning society. And that brings me to your terrific accounting of Paris in the kind of mid-17th century, where basically, I, I want you to tell the story, but they're just thinking, okay, what if we make rules about everything that people are doing wrong, so then they'll do them right? Explain how that, what some of those rules were and how that worked out. Well, the background to this is that Paris, like several other European cities, London, Amsterdam during this period, is doubling, tripling, quadrupling in size. So suddenly you have um, smashed into a small medieval city that might have had 50,000 inhabitants, 
500,000 inhabitants, and they are constantly getting in each other's way. So the rules range from you must sweep the threshold of your dwelling every morning before 7 a.m., or um, you should not be playing ball in the street, or um, a mule, which is um, not saddled or burdened with heavy loads, um, cannot be allowed to go any faster than a canter. Um, or only certain people are allowed to wear lace trim on their sleeves. And that lace trim should not be more than two and a half inches broad and on and on and on. Um, and the, the illusion cultivated by the lieutenant of police in Paris, who is this all-powerful, by rumor at least, all-seeing figure, the man who knows literally where all the bodies are buried, is that if only the rules can be woven into a net which has a mesh so tight that no one can escape it, Parisians will become orderly. People will no longer be run over in the streets by a galloping carriage, as Rousseau was, by the way. Um, people will no longer have their progress interrupted by rowdy boys playing um, in the street, playing ball in the street. Um, pedestrians will not be pushed against the wall by um, a, a trotting horse that's coming by. Um, these, this is the vision of order that danced before the eyes of the lieutenant of the Parisian police, only to have that dream shattered again and again by the recalcitrant Parisians. Right. I'm going to read uh, one of my favorite sentences back to you. And in such ludicrous contrast to the lived real life of the city, <laughs> if there was one thing that Parisians and visitors uh, alike agreed upon, it was that Enlightenment Paris was a squalid, stinking, crowded chaos where then as now one took one's life in one's hands just to cross the street. So that's one – in defense of the, of the lieutenant, I think it was him uh, he, that it was he who said, give me 650 years. Uh, and I can close all these loopholes and make it work, right? Well, it's actually um, a Parisian, someone okay. who knew the city very well, Louis Mercier, Mercier uh, who yeah. writes um, a kind of portrait of the city. It's called the Tableau de Paris. And he also writes a utopia of the Paris in the year 2440. So it's taken that long. And he says, <laughs> people are actually keeping to the right of the street, which he thinks <laughs> is nothing short of miraculous. He, It's not one of those futuristic fantasies in which there are new technologies. People are still getting around on foot and on horseback or in carriages. What's changed is human nature, or at least Parisian nature, and they are finally obeying the rules. Right. So, I mean, there's two things that happen when you make try to make a very, very tight set of rules and constantly close the loopholes until they become a kind of successful netting. Either it doesn't work the way it didn't work in, in Paris in the 17th century, or, and I've never been to North Korea, but my sense is they like have a lot of rules and people obey them because the consequences of not obeying them uh, are are very vast and significant and dark. Uh, and so then the question becomes, well, then how do we judge a rule? Do we judge it by whether or not it actually can be enforced, or do we judge it by whether or not it contributes to human thriving and happiness? Because sometimes those are in opposition. Yeah, I think 
what's very interesting is when rules have all of the force of surveillance and enforcement on their side and yet still fail. And in the book, I talk about 500 years of rule failure with regard to telling people what to wear, the so-called sumptuary regulations, which my examples are drawn from um, medieval and early modern Europe, but sumptuary laws have existed in almost every society. Recently, uh, I read about women in Sudan being flogged for wearing pants in public. So those are rules that as I say, um, often have whole special squads of police, for example, in medieval Venice or Bologna, to catch malefactors, people who were wearing shoes, big shoes, where the pointy toes were longer than three inches, um, women who were wearing um, satin sleeves, which trailed on the ground, um, um, men who were wearing gold buttons on their doublets and sometimes melting down coins in order to make their fashion frippery. Um, code after code, regulation after regulation, incentive after incentive was given to enforce these rules and they almost never worked. Um, they encountered steady, stubborn, sustained resistance. And I think if you went to a high school, as I did, that had a dress code, you know exactly what was going on. No sooner had a rule been made than all of the kids in the high school had discovered some way of following the letter of the prohibition, but not its spirit, or devising some completely new fashion fad not foreseen <laughs> by the principal and the vice principal. Right. I went to a, a private school in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, and uh, guys wanted to wear uh, turtlenecks under their sport jackets. And we were, they were told they couldn't because it was a jacket and tie dress code uh, where I went to school. And so they would put on a shirt and a tie and put the turtleneck over it uh, and then put the jacket over that. <laughs> and then they would insist that, you know, they, this is just a sweater uh, and sweaters were OK. So, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, we've seen recently some instances uh, about either the imposition or the sudden relaxing of rules. One I don't think we're going to spend any time on today, but Elon Musk in taking over Twitter basically said there were too many rules. Uh, he was going to suspend or get rid of a lot of those rules. And then it turned out almost instantly he wound up making even more rules. Um, rules that were more satisfactory to him. This idea uh, of sort of intellectual libertarianism just wasn't going to even work for him. But all of us dealt with new rules during the pandemic. Uh, and I think there's a term that you use, like rule vertigo or something. We just get over what we got overwhelmed by the suddenness of new rules. Yes. So this was a time in which we were being issued new rules of conduct, which were not only different from the rules of our normal behavior, but which changed on a weekly basis. And moreover, we're um, saturated with anxiety because our lives might depend on following those rules or the lives of people we loved. And what I witnessed, um, I witnessed most of this from Berlin, was that a population, a population which is in general inclined to be rule compliant, um, often in a spirit of vulgar Kantianism, um, often a reproach you'll hear in a German train if somebody breaks a rule, well, what if everybody did that? But even this population um, began to be, first of all, uncertain what the rules were, and then um, to become skeptical of all rules. 
which had completely lost their grip because they never lingered long enough to become anchored in people's habits um, to be internalized as norms. Yeah, I think the minute you change or undermine any, any rule, you start you sow doubt about it. I mean, I, I, I lived through the institution of right turn on red lights uh, here in the United States and particularly in Connecticut where I live. And the minute that became legal to take a right turn at a red light, which it didn't used to be, people just decided red lights were completely fungible. You know, they could just kind oh. of do, do whatever they wanted to do. Maybe these red lights, you know, aren't worth getting excited about at all. And I think that was some of the struggle. But I also feel, Lorraine, as though one of the things we saw during the pandemic is the importance of having a rule sometimes to take everybody off the hook. And I'll give you an example. I was going to the eye doctor and I'm standing there in my mask. And this guy comes in. He's actually uh, being wheeled in in a wheelchair. He's obviously got some kind of health problem. He's an older guy, and he's not wearing a mask. Uh, and the people at the front desk say, oh, you have to wear a mask. And he's rebelling against that. And they said, it's the CDC rule, at which point he started saying really pretty terrible things about the CDC. But, th- but I was aware at that moment that being able to say that anyway – took the receptionist or the nurse or whoever was there at the front desk saying that a little bit off the hook. I mean, a rule could be very helpful because otherwise you're just arguing about your preferences over somebody else's. Absolutely. That's a great example. And it by appealing to the authority, which neither of them had any sway over, neither the receptionist nor um, the patient in the wheelchair, um, uh, she basically took the entire discussion out of their confrontation. It was no longer about either of them um, and diffused the situation. Um, did he put on a mask after that, by the way? I, you know, I, I decided not to watch this whole thing play out. I probably should have in the interest of social science. I'm assuming that he had to put on a mask. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I thought later when the CDC started lifting masked, mask rules or mandates is now what we call rules that people don't like. Uh, and, but when the mask mandates went away, <laughs> I thought, well, I felt bad for anybody who for other kinds of reasons, might want to have to have somebody put on a mask because they couldn't point to a, a CDC rule anymore. Although, you know, what I notice here in Berlin, um, that in pharmacies, especially if there are older people present who are wearing masks, um, many younger people who I think don't wouldn't be inclined to wear a mask in such a situation, um, fumble in their pockets, find <laughs> um, a bedraggled mask um, and put it on I think is an expression of silent solidarity. They realize that older people are more at risk and more fearful um, and therefore respond by signaling. I'm not sure, frankly, how much protection these bedraggled masks afford, but they, they signal that they understand that their situations are different and that they will be gallant enough to make um, a slight sacrifice on behalf of those at greater risk. But I think, Lorraine, also, so much of that varies depending on whether some kind of collectivism, some kind of sense of the common good is, is already priced into a society. So, I mean, for example, in Japan, there is kind of a sense, you know, kind of it's a crowded country. We're all in this together. Uh, I think that's also to some degree true of the Scandinavian social democracies, right, that you don't even necessarily have to make vaccine rules or mandates. People are going to get them because they understand that, that they live collectively to a certain degree and they have to work with one another. 
Whereas I think America is still, you know, drowning in this notion of individualism. The most popular TV show in America right now is a show called Yellowstone, where Kevin Costner plays this rancher who one of his mottos is, my land, my rules. In America, you've won the game if you get to make your own rules. And I think it makes it hard for us to behave collectively in the way that you're describing. It's interesting. Um, But I am interested in the motto, which is not my land, I'll do whatever the hell I want to do. (laughs) It's my land, my rules. I shall be the lawgiver. So it's not really about freedom from rules. I mean, the libertarian stance, um, you mentioned Elon Musk, who believes in libertarianism for himself, but not for the rest of us. But the libertarian stance is usually no rules, at least that's the official line. But in fact, I think that motto is truer to the reality, which is just not your rules. Thank you very much. That's right. All right. We have to take a quick break here. Lorraine is going to stay with us. Uh, This is a fascinating conversation about her very interesting book about rules. Rules, a short history of what we live by. We'll be back to talk about unwritten rules and with a little bit of help because it's not Lorraine's wheelhouse. We'll be talking about some sports rules. These are just Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's the Ten Dual Commandments. It's the Ten Dual Commandments. Number one, the challenge demands satisfaction. If they apologize, these those, those are rules of a game where uh, a considerable amount is on the line. It's from Hamilton, of course. You all know that. Uh, with us is Lorraine Dustin, uh, author of Rules: A Short History of What We Live By, and director emerita of the Max Planck Institute for History of Science in Berlin. Um, her uh, book is really just fascinating, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about unwritten rules. And to help us out with that is Jason Turbo, journalist and author of The Baseball Codes, Bean Balls, Sign Stealings, and Bench Clearing Balls, The Unwritten Rules of America's Pastime, among other books. Jason, I'm going to have you get us going here, because like everybody knows, 
or most people know that there are written down rules and there are rules that the umpire, uh, the umpires know and, and enforce. But there's a whole bunch of other things that you're not supposed to do in baseball. Uh, and, and maybe we could uh, mention a few of them. You can usually tell that someone has broken one of those unwritten rules because a fight will break out uh, on the field. There will be a bench clearing a brawl. But can you just give, give people some examples of what those rules are? Well, uh, sure. Uh, and ultimately, these rules come down to respect, almost all of them, save for the, the slight subsection that has to do with superstition. But, but mostly it's about respect. Um, you don't respect me, I have to respond in kind. And I think one of the beautiful parts about baseball for me is that it, it's a game of space. There's a, there's a lot of time between plays, which lets teams strategize, and it also lets teams send a message. Um, and if that message is, uh, you know, I, I'm upset with you, it, they're allowed to send that on the field. And they, they can do that in a number of ways. Um, for example, by stealing a base with a big lead late in a game. Like that's, that's considered disrespectful. You know, in football, in blowout games, teams take out their starters, they play their reserves. Um, that occasionally happens in baseball too. Um, but at that point, players are, are supposed to take their foot off the gas, slow the game down, play station to station, you advance one base on a single, two bases on a double, et cetera, um, and, and let the other team just kind of find their way out of the game, move on until tomorrow. Everyone understands you'll be on the wrong end of that equation eventually. Um, sometimes sometimes players have a bone to pick, and, and they will steal that base. They will score from second on, on a single, and then teams get upset at them. And sometimes the response to that upset that is, is to drill a batter. Um, it happens. It, it, it happens less frequently now than it used to, but it used to happen all the time. And then, and then the result is, as you mentioned, <laughs> brawls on the baseball field, which um, for for everyone in the stands is 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 a different kind of entertainment. Right, and, and I, it's also interesting. And uh, I'm going to eventually go to Lorraine on this because I think she'll have sort of theoretical things to say about it. But I mean, another part of this understanding is if, if you do something that's offensive to me, um, I don't have to hit you with the pitch. I don't have to drill you. I can hit any of your teammates, really. Yeah, that's not true in all cases, but in some cases, you've opened a door. Uh, and so, you know, either by by hitting one of my batters or by doing one of the things that you're uh, you're, you're talking about that's so offensive. Um, yes, I mean, it could be that I'll throw at you, but the other possibility is, particularly if you're a pitcher and you're not going to come up to the plate, I can just hit anybody. Yeah, and that's very effective because if I get drilled for something my teammate did, I'm going to be pretty upset at my teammate. And there there will be words in, in the clubhouse after the game to to make things right. And and that happens all the time. And occasionally it happens on the field. The pitcher will yell at the guy he, he just hit with the baseball. You know, you, you let that other guy know about it and... and and take care of it yourself. You know, there are some instances where I think these things are up for debate, too. And they, they, they are implicitly up for debate because people break these rules. So they clearly don't think that they're universally enforced. But I'll give you an example of one that's kind of interesting, too, because there's a gallantry uh, built into it. So a pitcher's got a no-hitter uh, going, say, into the ninth inning. There is kind of an unwritten rule that you don't try to bunt for a base hit under those circumstances. Uh, you know, that if you're going to wreck his no-hitter, do it with a full stroke of the bat. Um, and and that's kind of first of all, there's something kind of nice about that. Like, don't wreck this guy's great moment. But there are other players who think, no, it is my job to go out there and try to hit a hit and get on base. Screw you! I'll bunt for a base hit, particularly if they're in a shift. I'm going to do that. Uh, and, and so th it's not as though everybody agrees about these rules. 
Well, that's that's what makes them so interesting. Even the people who do agree on the rules don't agree on the parameters per se. Like what constitutes a big lead? What constitutes late in the game? Um, factors such as how thin the the opposition's bullpen might be. Have they been used heavily in recent days? Might might they be on kind of their their last last line of pitching? Um, they, they all fa- this all factors in. And to your point about bunting during a no hitter, I mean that that might be one of the most famous examples of the unwritten rules. The idea being, if you're going to beat me at my best, I want you to do it with your best. You know, twenty years ago, more than twenty years ago, uh, Kurt Schilling, then of the then of the Arizona Diamondbacks, was throwing a perfect game at the San Diego Padres, whose backup catcher, a guy named Ben Davis, who literally people only remember now because of this one play, bunted for a base hit, um, broke up the perfect game, and part of the reason people were upset was. Bunting was not part of his game, right? That was not 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 a way he normally got on base. Yeah. Um, Kurt Schilling, who I spoke to uh, a couple of years later, was upset because it was a terrible bunt, but somehow it still worked. But the mitigating factor was the score at the time was two to nothing, and the Padres desperately needed a base runner. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the mitigating factor in all of this. Yeah, um, winning trumps all the code. It doesn't matter what you do if you have a victory in mind, you can get away with a lot that you can't get away with with a four or five or more run lead. Right. The other mitigating factor was it was Kurt Schilling. Uh, and I, and I, I'm a Red Sox fan. I still don't think enough bad things can happen to Kurt Schilling. But um, so um, there's also a way in which, you know, there's all these rules and baseball is kind of a, you know, pardon the expression, kind of a tight ass sport as sports go, I think. And there, there are rules, there are unwritten rules. But there is some kind of valorization, sometimes with a little bit of distance and time, of the rascal. You know, I, I'm thinking even of in 1968, Don Drysdale, who I think was still an active pitcher at that time and was kind of famous for loading up the ball. Um, you know, in other words, putting spit or Vaseline or God knows what on the ball. Um, you know, I mean, he did actually a Vitalis commercial that was a big joke about him, you know, loading up the ball. Uh, he didn't have greasy hair because he used Vitalis. Couldn't possibly be true. I mean, Gaylord Perry was both, you know, a highly suspect figure in terms of throwing a spitter. But also this kind of lovable rascal, right? There's sort of a way in which you know both things can be true. Absolutely, Gerald Perry. His autobiography is called "Me and the Spitter," <laughs> and it came out in 1975 in the middle of his career. Right? Yeah. He wasn't trying to hide anything, <laughs> and that actually was one of his strengths as a pitcher. He sat there on the mound and fidgeted endlessly. He would tug on his sleeve. He would touch his cap. He would he would <laughs> rub the back of his neck, even when he wasn't throwing a spitball. He the opposition was doing nothing but thinking about how he was going to throw a spitball and thus it gained power. And yeah, he be, he became a lovable rascal because he wasn't an angry pitcher. Um, and and I think that that's a great point. Guys guys who manage to sway public perception can get away with a lot more than the pitchers. You know, in baseball terminology, they're known as red asses who will take offense to any slight and and all of a sudden the opposing batters are getting thrown at for for reasons that no one else fully understands. So, Lorraine Daston, uh, you specifically said you didn't want to have to explain the infield fly rule uh, on the show. (laughs) Uh, You know, you said you're not a sports expert, but um, I know as you're listening to all this uh, and and fitting it into the rubric of all the work and research that you've done, any particular insights or, or just observations about what you're hearing? First of all, it's fascinating. And I think I remember enough rules of baseball from my high school days to um, follow the general outlines. And the first thing that strikes me is 
how counter this is to what the people who theorize games believe. They believe that in games, um, anything which is not explicitly forbidden is allowed. There are no gray areas um, that the adversaries have one and only one goal in mind, which is to win, come hell or high water. Whereas the landscape that Jason's just described for us is so much more nuanced and so much more about the interactions between the players on the opposite team. So I have, I have a question about whether it would make a difference if a game was being played without the presence of an audience. To what extent is the demonstration that you will not stand for your honor being impugned, um, being performed for a public, as opposed to being almost a reflexive reaction to a violation of one of these implicit rules? What a great question. Jason, take it. Well, I think we have a definitive answer to that question. And it is that the public doesn't make much of a difference because baseball teams did play <laughs> before empty stands during the pandemic. And this kind of stuff played out just the same. This this really is between players, players themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I, I think the idea of getting shown up uh, in terms of all of the interviews I've done, the thousands and thousands of interviews I've done on this subject with baseball players, no one has mentioned <laughs> the viewing audience. It's all about their own teammates and the opposition. Right. Um, and, and that's what matters. I mean, they, they want to maintain face in, in whatever <laughs> macho permutation that might take in a clubhouse. Mm -hmm. But, but it, it, no, one, no one has ever talked about being embarrassed in front of a crowd. You know, that the thing that Lorraine said, though, about the idea, the game theory idea that anything that's not expressly forbidden, you can try. Um, it's it's certainly there. And I think of two historic figures. One of them is from football, Pop Warner. Everybody play, your kids play in Pop Warner leagues and they're, it's kind of an exalted name. But, but Warner actually was famous in the early part of the 20th century for exactly that. For example, he, and he had kind of a bad football team he was coaching uh, and they were undersized, not fast. And he would do stuff like he would put elbow pads on their uniform so when they crossed their arms, it kind of looked like a football. So a whole bunch of players running around with their arms crossed, any one of them could conceivably have the football and kind of a tricky, you know, multiple handoff play. He even designed a, a play where they kind of formed a huddle in the middle of the action and they had elasticized waistbands and you could stick the ball in somebody's pants. <laughs> and then they'd all run around like they had the ball. So, uh, and, and Jason, the other person I think of is Bill Veck. You know, Bill Veck was constantly, and he was uh, with the White Sox, uh, he was the owner of the White Sox, I think, at one point. And his whole mm -hmm. question is, what can I get away with? What, what if I had a little person, who like a little person who had no strike zone, essentially, <laughs> go up to bat, bat and just hold the hold the bat on his shoulder to see if he got on base? Uh, and once again, you know, this is somebody testing the rules. I don't know. But certainly, historically, he's another one of those lovable rascals. Yeah. And that little person's name was Eddie Goodell. And he did indeed get on base walking on four pitches because his strike zone was so minuscule. minuscule. And, and baseball immediately ruled, the commissioner immediately ruled that that was making a travesty of the game and, and banned anything like that from happening again. And yet Bill Veck was lovable because of it, yeah. um, which is as it should be. I mean, what's interesting to me is, is that these rules that have been so inviolable for literally a century um, over even just the last five years have taken a big turn um, based on, on a trio of things. 
Um, one being the World Baseball Classic in 2017 when the Puerto Rico team played baseball games in big league stadiums against players, comp- their competition from the major leagues. They were wearing national team uniforms at that point, and they celebrated like there was no no tomorrow, which is the culture they grew up learning, mm-hmm. uh, playing baseball in, in their home country. And they had so much fun, and everyone loved watching it, and no one took offense at it. It was It was wonderful. And a couple of years after that, Major League Baseball itself came out with an ad campaign called Let the Kids Play, in which they they promoted all these young players doing celebratory things. And suddenly, does that mean they're endorsing it? No one was really sure. There were, were a, a few mixed signals based on that. Um, but then, then to me, the most interesting one was last year. Giants manager Gabe Kapler, a famously analytical former player, manager of the Giants, which is a famously analytical team over the last few years, came, came out and said outright, we're going to keep playing throughout the entire game, no matter the score, because we're trying to weaken the opposing team's bullpen. Not only for that game, but for the ensuing games in the series, and not only for those games, but for their next series against their next opponent. This is, you know, these are our rivals. We want, we want to get into their, their strengths as much as we can. And with that, he, he made the very clear point, this is not about respect. This is about winning baseball games, you know, to, to the previous point. And, and no one really had a clear response to that. Like, it, it was logical. Right, and, and, and at and least he was it saying it out He said it out loud, and he also kind of paved the way for it. He plowed the road by saying, that's what we're going to do. He, the, the, nobody got blindsided. We're going to have to break here, but Lorraine, before we do, you know, m- one thing that I think is kind of implicit or understood in some of the things that Jason is saying is that unwritten rules are often more fiercely in, enforced than written rules, um, maybe because because people take them a lot more seriously. I agree. I think that Jason's examples are terrific cases of the gap between rules, which are written down, codified, and norms. And the unwritten rules are clearly more deeply entrenched as norms, and therefore the indignation when they're violated is commensurately furious. All right, we have to take a little break here. Uh, Thanks so much to both of the guests on this um, segment, but especially to Jason Turbo. His book, The Baseball Codes, Beanball, Sign Stealing, and Bench Clearing Brawls, The Unwritten Rules of America's Pastime. We will take a break and return. Okay, I got to go faster because I broke the rules of managing the clock and I left us with only five minutes here. Cat Pastors, our technical producer, Lily Tyson, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, produced this episode. Now joining us, Eric Zimmerman, award-winning designer of board games and video games, arts professor of game design at the NYU Game Center, and author of The Rules We Break, Lessons in Play, Lessons in Play Thinking, and Design. So, Eric, welcome to our conversation. And, um, you know, I mean, it can be argued that a game kind of is its rules, right? Or at least a, a game has to have rules in, in order to set 
people free to really play. Could you say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, this has been such an uh, interesting conversation uh, about rules. And uh, as a game designer, you know, rules are our raw material. So, you know, if a musician is working with notes and music, and if visual artists work with maybe pigment and color, if they're a painter, game designers, the thing that we put our hands on directly, they're rules. Of course, what matters to us is not the rules themselves, but what people do with them and how they behave in, in different situations. But there's definitely a, a, a close relationship between games and rules. I mean, um, yeah, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, Colin, just just to give an example, let's let you and I, I thought we could start by take take a simple game, uh, tic-tac-toe. So what Colin, what 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 are the rules of tic-tac-toe or what what's a rule of tic-tac-toe? Well, uh, the one person goes first. Uh, right. And uh, marks uh, or you know marks in one of the squares. Uh, right. On, on this what nine square grid. Yes, okay, that's great. Yeah, so there's two players and we've got a 3 by 3 grid. You have to mark in an empty square. Mm-hmm. Um, your your mark X or O, and there's two winning conditions, right, uh, or ending conditions. Um, if if I get three in a row, I win. Uh, if you do, you win. And if if no one can play, um, then um, the game ends in a tie. And what's so there's I don't know maybe four or five rules that we can quickly summarize. What fascinates me as a game designer is that that kind of raw stuff out of which a game like tic-tac-toe is made has produced billions and billions of hours of behavior right and every game of tic-tac-toe that's ever been played since i don't know the last hundred or more years whether it's people drawing lines on a beach or uh scratching something on a whiteboard with with markers um has has sort of followed this grammar this this conversation defined by the rules of tic-tac-toe on the other hand, so you, you and I started to play tic-tac-toe, and it gets kind of boring pretty fast. Um, right. And so we might make some new rules, like, okay, Eric, you can't go first next time. You know, we might start we might start hacking the rules a little bit to make them more interesting. Com- absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so this has been, I think, the theme of the conversation today with Lorraine and Jason, which is that um, what folklorists or anthropologists sometimes call the difference between the 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 ideal rules and the real rules, the kind of logical, rigid, um, uh, rational rules of the game, the mathematical rules, but then there's the rules by which people play. And and I think what we keep on talking about, whether it's about traffic lights or behavior in sports, is the, is the is something that Piaget pointed out when he was studying marbles which is that when children are very young, um, they they are just learning the rules of the game. They understand that I can knock marbles around, but um, maybe I'm I'm not going to fully follow them. Once they reach age five, six, seven, they can get it. Oh, there's rules they understand, and they're very orthodox about wanting to play exactly by the rules, and the rules can't be broken. But once they reach about age eight, they're essentially in an adult frame of mind, which is okay, there's rules to a game, but the rules are also a social contract. And we only follow the rules because we decide together to um, to, to do so. And that we can actually break and change and modify the rules 
as we want, which I think is sort of what you're talking about. So if, if you were playing tic-tac-toe with a little kid and you might let them take a move back because you don't want them to lose a game so early or you want to teach them a better strategy for play. So I think that games and play are interesting because they embody this idea of top-down authoritative logical rules but also it's opposite which is play okay which is improvisational and spontaneous and creative i'm about to hit the biggest rule of all which is when the show ends which is very soon so i want to thank eric zimmerman and lorraine Dascon. thanks for being with us 